grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, delivers a skillful storytelling that fluidly merges scene after scene. Luke does this in our gospel lesson as well. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This fourfold mockery of Jesus will be the text of our message today. My son had Oreo pancakes for dinner at Big Boy and Clio the other day. That has nothing to do with my sermon. But we do love stories. We don't always like what happens in a story. Take Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Set in the 1930s, Tom Robinson, a poor African-American field attendant, is accused of trying to rape a white girl named Mayella. And many of the town's citizens disapprove of his legal representation. But here's the kicker. Tom didn't do it. Sadly, the girl's father, Bob, is actually the one who beats her after seeing her make advances towards Tom. Worse yet, the jury finds Tom guilty despite the evidence that proves Tom's innocence. And Tom is shot and killed in jail. So much can be drawn from a good story. Stories put names and faces with themes and events. Luke, in our gospel lesson, delivers a skillful story that I'm calling To Kill a Mocking Word. Jesus is rejected four times here. Rulers scoff at Jesus. Soldiers mock him. An inscription sarcastically names him King of the Jews. A criminal rails at Jesus. Christ is being attacked by this fourfold mockery from the people. Tom Robinson is a sort of Christ figure in this novel, insofar as he's wrongly accused and convicted of a crime which he didn't commit, killed as a result of the sins of others, and rejected by his people. Everything seems to be falling apart for Tom. Similarly, Luke portrays the true Christ figure who's also wrongly accused and convicted. Where someone like Tom might be asking why everything seems to be falling apart, Jesus does not. Instead of Jesus asking why everything seems to be falling apart, we're the ones asking, along with those in the gospel lesson, why Jesus? You saved others. Why aren't you saving yourself? You'll be killed. How are you not angry with these people? How can your death make sense? And yet, Jesus was the target of mockery, and he was killed. 
to kill, a mocking word. This makes us think of the fifth commandment, formerly learned as thou shalt not kill. Today it's memorized as you shall not murder. In this case, Jesus was killed and it was murder. And it doesn't make sense. The people mocked Jesus because they knew it would kill him. What they didn't know is what could be accomplished through his death and resurrection. They were looking for a victory, a Messiah who was in complete control. To kill Jesus was the sinful act of his people rejecting him. But God was able to use what people meant for evil to accomplish his goodness. Paul tells us, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. All men and women have or will die. All the way back to Adam and Eve. We see death as game over. That's why the rulers, soldiers, the inscription, and a criminal all mock Jesus. This is game over for you, Jesus. Save yourself. But Jesus doesn't listen because everything isn't really falling apart for Jesus. Death is not final. This is not game over. Here's where all good stories deviate from the crucifixion of our Lord. Tom Robinson, the falsely accused and convicted man in To Kill a Mockingbird, never comes back from the dead. That only happens in fantasy novels. Tom Robinson doesn't defeat sin, death, and the devil by having lived a perfect life. No, Tom just dies. Tom is a Christ figure because of his sentence and death that can point to Christ. But Tom won't return to restore all things. Jesus did. Our epistle says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How foolish it was to mock Jesus. We don't know how his death on the cross saves us. But the proof of the truth is in the resurrection. The Mockingbird symbolizes innocence in the novel. To kill a mockingbird is symbolically about the killing of that innocence in several ways. Of concern here is Tom, who's tried and convicted despite being innocent. So how is innocence killed? By words and deeds, by mockery. But mockery couldn't kill the innocence of Jesus. Conversely, the mocking word symbolizes corruption in the world. To kill a mocking word is symbolically about the mockery of Jesus that still exists today in us. Christ is mocked by rulers, soldiers, an inscription, and a criminal. As I tried to wrap my mind around Luke's account, it occurred to me that their titles were overshadowing what was actually happening in the cruelty of their mocking words. We shouldn't just ask who these people are, but what do their mocking words mean today? Sometimes we, you, are the targets 
or victims of mocking words. And sometimes we are the ones speaking mocking words to others. We'll now examine all four of these mocking words. The rulers mock Jesus from positions of affluence. In our book, the town treats Tom, a minority, this way. And the jury certainly does in their conviction of an innocent man. We in our day still deal with discrimination as a result of differences in affluence between us and others. That affluence could be the result of social status, success, education, or simply sophistication. And it can get stereotyped not just across race, but across occupation, according to our possessions, and the like. And this discrimination doesn't only happen from one side. People aren't better or worse by affluence or lack thereof. And we need to be careful not to think this way. You might do this, or you might even be the victim of these mocking words. The soldiers mocked Jesus from positions of standing. Soldiers in that day were feared and disliked for their heavy-handedness and corruption. Soldiers today, here, are much more liked and respected. Either way, authority is bestowed on soldiers and public servants according to their abilities, their gifts. Those attributes such as physique, talents, or reputation are generally liked or respected, even if the person is not. In our book, the lawyer and his family were mostly insulated during the Depression, and they were mostly ignorant of what Tom's life was like until hatred for him started spilling over onto them. Their lack of understanding is much like our soldiers in our text, and like us at times, because of our inability to fully appreciate the hardships of others. The inscription was meant to purport a lie about Jesus. This lie stands as a false witness to who Jesus is. The inscription read, this is the king of the Jews. It was just a sign above his head that the soldiers and people read the sign and the sign told them a mockery of Jesus. In our book, a guilty verdict is issued for Tom. The verdict is a sign that tells us about Tom. But the sign is a mockery. Now imagine the way you live your lives. You admit your faith. You are a Christian. You are Christ-like. Your life is a sign below Jesus that says, this is what Christ was like. Jesus was like me. Yikes. Our actions reflect on Jesus and on others. Just like the actions of children reflect on their parents. Now this isn't always a true reflection, is it? We can't live perfect lives like Jesus. Our kids don't always do things that we approve of. But nonetheless, our actions are mocking words that hang as signage below Jesus on our church and families. The criminal who rails at Jesus is making false testimony about him. 
In our book, Bob, the father of the victim, gives false testimony of Tom by refusing to admit his own abuse of his daughter, Mayella. Bob provided a false testimony about his knowledge of the event. Bob knew that Tom was not to blame, but Bob lied. His words, his speech, spread a lie about Tom. That criminal is you. That criminal is me. To kill a mocking word is also about the eighth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Luther says we should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. Our speech reflects on Jesus and on others, be it our family, our church or school, our community, our nation, and on all our affiliations. All four of these mocking words happen to Jesus. The irony is that they're all true. Jesus does save others. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. He is the king of the Jews. The Christ will save us. But all these mocking words were said sarcastically. So how was Jesus able to withstand them? To answer that, let's look at what Jesus does. First, he doesn't feel the need to respond to any of them. He only responds after the other criminal makes his good confession. Second, these mocking words come from positions of ignorance that only see his coming death. And Jesus takes them like water off a duck's back. He hardly seems to even notice them. And he certainly doesn't harp on them. They were correct in their assumption that Jesus was going to die. But they were dead wrong, pardon the pun, that his death was going to be the end of his story. None of us have been in Tom's shoes, but we all know what mocking words feel like. And they don't glance off us like water off a duck's back. We get irate. Sometimes we retaliate. But all these responses are so short-sighted. They lack the vision of his second coming. Jesus doesn't stay dead. For many of us, death might seem like the end of the story, but Jesus is coming again. The last Sunday, this day of the church year, we celebrate his triumphant return that will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. One without sin, death, or mocking words. If Jesus is going to return and restore all things anew, then nothing else matters. And he tells us to live like this now. Don't wait for it. Don't fear death and don't fear mocking words. When we are the targets of mocking words, don't get so offended how foolish that is. Like Jesus who received this fourfold mockery, we should be unchanged, immovable. Being a target of mocking words puts you in good company with Christ. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these of my brothers, you did it to me. They are targeting Christ. And if you're the one doing these mocking words, then you're the one targeting Christ. When we do or say these mocking words, 
We become the rulers, the soldiers, the inscription, and the criminal. Mocking words. But in Christ's suffering and death, he became our substitute. Our substitute for sins of mockery. And he defeated death. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Where Tom Robinson was found guilty, you are found not guilty. Even more, you are found innocent. Jesus takes your guilt and gives you his innocence. The judge has taken your punishment and set you free. So how do we stop? To kill a mocking word. Again, we look to Luther's explanation of the fifth and eighth commandments. How do we stop a mocking word of murder? We help and support our neighbor in every physical need. How do we stop a mocking word of false testimony? We defend our neighbors, speak well of them, and explain everything in the kindest way. Imagine if these things had happened for Tom Robinson. Imagine if the jury didn't reject his defense. Imagine if the townsmen and women spoke well of him. Imagine if everything was explained in the kindest way. Imagine if Mayella was never beaten by her father. Imagine if we believed and lived like Christ was returning. Mocking words would cease to matter. And our lives would testify truth about him who saves. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.